Hello, everyone. This is Kelly Reed from the SIOP Visibility Committee. I'm very happy to welcome our ninth guest to the SIOP Conversation Series, Dr. Elaine Polacco, the CEO of PDRI. Before we begin today's conversation, I want to remind you that most of the questions we'll be asking Elaine today were submitted by you, our listeners, in advance of this broadcast. We want to thank you for your contributions to this conversation. In other news, at SIOP, the Visibility Committee is currently conducting a survey of the top 10 workplace trends, and we encourage all SIOP members to check their emails for the survey invitation from SIOP to weigh in on this year's top trends. Finally, a reminder that all episodes of the SIOP Conversation series are recorded and published as a podcast on iTunes and Google Play and are housed on the SIOP website on the Conversation series landing page. Now, I'm happy to welcome and introduce Dr. Elaine Polacos, the CEO of PDRI. She has spent her career working with organizations to design and implement talent management systems and processes in the areas of staffing and assessment, performance management, leadership development, and succession management. She's a recognized talent management thought leader, particularly in the areas of performance management reform and individual, team, and organizational agility. She's frequently invited to address both practitioner audiences and the scientific community and has authored numerous articles, book chapters, and books, as well as three best practice volumes for the Society for Human Resources Management. Her work has been recognized with several awards, including this, the SIOP Distinguished Professional Contributions Award, the M. Scott Myers Award for Applied Research in the Workplace, and the William A. Owen Scholarly Achievement Award, among others. Elaine is a fellow of the American Psychological Association and SIOP, for which she also served as president. Elaine, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Kelly. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Looking forward to the conversation. So, Elaine, to kick things off, what drew you to IO Psychology initially? I'll tell you, that's kind of funny because when I went to college, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I took a bunch of different courses, and I found psychology courses incredibly interesting. Now, my dad said to me, you have to go get a job, a major in something where you can get a job. I'm not going to pay for four years of school and have you not be able to get a job at the end of it, so you need to be a business major. And so I went off, and I took business courses, and I didn't really like them, and I actually didn't do very well in accounting in particular. So I thought to myself, I really love this psychology stuff. And I landed on a consumer psychology course because it sounded like business and psychology. It was actually taught by an IO psychologist. And I thought, this is it. This is for me. I mean, I get to take the psychology that I love. I get to apply it in a business setting so I could kind of convince my dad that the whole business thing was under control. The only problem is, I wasn't going to be out in four years. But that's what drew me to IO psychology. I just, it was a love of psychology, really. Um, and then finding this place, business to apply it to, which I actually ended up loving myself. It wasn't just because my dad told me to do it, but that's where it started. And with the PhD, that in and itself is a labor of love. Did you, um, did you know immediately you wanted to go on and get the PhD or, or was that something that took some, uh, some decision? Yeah, no, I went ahead and got the PhD because you have to go back, back, I sound like my grandmother now, back when I was in school, 
you know, it was, it was quite a while ago. There weren't so many master's programs and, and really the only degree that anybody ever talked about, it's kind of, if you're going to be a psychology major undergrad, you have to go get a PhD, you know, become an academic or do something with it. But there just weren't many terminal master's programs, and certainly the best ones were all PhD programs. So I just, that was no decision there. I felt like there was no choice. And um, and what about performance management as a specialty? What drew you to that? Yeah, you know, everything I've done, Kelly, sadly, it, I'm not really drawn to it. It's more, it calls me, and it calls me for a very practical reason. I've always worked in organizations where you have to generate revenue. So the work that I've done is always a result of somebody who's willing to pay for it. And there's two areas that I've, at various points in my career, you know, at one point I was doing almost exclusively selection work and then performance management became really big and lots of companies were doing it, lots of organizations were doing it. So there was just a lot of work in the area and I started doing work in the area because that's where you could go get money. And there was another area that I've done a lot of research in on organizational individual adaptability. Um, that's an area that the Army was interested in trying to understand more. They wanted training and selection instruments and so on and so forth to identify people who would be adaptable on the job. And I wrote a research proposal and they gave me funding and we did adaptability research for a number of years, which I've come full circle. I've become really interested in it again now that organizations are, you know, you hear everybody talking about how important it is to be agile in order to survive and compete well in the future. And I agree with that. So that's kind of reared its head again, but it was stimulated. I mean, I am very interested in the area, but again, the initiation of this area of research for me just came about because, wow, I could go get money and you needed to do that in my job. Hmm. Um, well, well. Speaking of your job, so you are you are a CEO who has training uh, as an IO PhD. Um, a lot of people who who end up in these business leadership roles who have IO PhDs, it's not necessarily what what they exactly went to school for once they get into the business leadership role. And so, um, tell us a little bit about your your job as CEO today, and what do you view as some of the key characteristics for success in your position? Yeah, it's interesting because the job that I have, and this wouldn't be true of all non-academic jobs, but in my particular job, the consistent theme and whether I'm CEO or just an individual contributor who wants to get ahead in, in this kind of business, which is a consultant consulting business, is simply knowing how to grow a business and understanding how to make money and compete in a very crowded market. And for me, this has always come down to having a differentiated value proposition in part and also knowing how to frame and communicate the unique value you offer so you kind of, you know, your head can rise above the crowd so people can really understand what it is they'll get if they come to your company versus another. And so the company I happen to work for, and I've worked for many companies because we've been by several different people, but PDRI in and of itself um, has a long history of developing innovative products and kind of being known as thought leaders. 
So the key for me in my job right now is being able to hone in on, you know, of the work that we're doing. What's a really cool innovation? What's a great new idea? And translate that into a high-value product that can generate revenue and profit for the business. And I'll also say getting back to basic business skills, to be in my position, you have to know something about business. You have to know finance. You have to know accounting, budgeting, marketing, sales. You know, you have to you have to have, be steeped in the business side. So I'm I like that. I like learning new things. I like trying new things. So I would say over the course of my career, it's actually evolved. I didn't start out. I mean, I had a business background, but I didn't love business in school, which is why. I actually wanted to pursue psychology. But over the course of my career, you know, as I did different things and did some research, did some consulting, felt like I got, um, I learned what I could there. I always wanted to learn something more and do something more. So my job now really did require learning a very a different set of skills. It's interesting. So um, you have a business background. A number of our listeners may be in graduate school or considering going to graduate school and wondering what courses they should be taking to get the best um, to get the best education for what they want to do after school. And for those who want to follow a consulting path or perhaps a path similar to yours, would you advise that they take some schools, uh, some classes in the business school, or is that something you think they can mostly learn on the job? You know, I would say I think I learned it on the job because there was a gap from when I took the courses to when I actually had to apply it of probably about 20 years. You know, the first when I first got out, I was strictly doing um, project work, actually developing assessments, you know, implementing development programs implementing performance management systems, that kind of thing. So there was a big gap there. I can't say that I remember much from my undergraduate business training that I applied. So I think I did learn it on the job. That being said, I think if you want to be really serious about the the kind of work that I do, you do have to acquire those skills somewhere along the line. And it certainly didn't hurt to have some familiarity with the terms. So I think if people want to be practitioners, Taking a few select business courses is a good idea just to get a foundation for it. Um, and it just, I, I don't know how many IOs actually want to pursue this path. I was just really curious at some point, could I build a business? I don't know where that even came from. Um, but it was just an interest of mine and I decided to pursue it. And uh, that's kind of the end of that story. It was one of those things that was just there probably under the surface. It emerged at some point. So, but I, I couldn't have told you back when I was in grad school that this is what was, you know, this was a passion that was gonna, gonna raise its head at some point in my career, but it did. Hmm. Well, um, Elaine, shifting focus to your work today, a big topic of conversation in nearly all of our episodes of, of the conversation series since its inception has been the changing nature of work. And so uh, with the world of work changing rapidly, what are your thoughts on how talent systems are keeping up? Yeah, that's a I love this question, Kelly, because this is what I think about a lot. Um, I still, by the way, even though I do what I do, 
and I have um, a leadership role and a business development role and it's running a business, you know, I've never completely abandoned my own research or doing my own consulting work because I find the work, the actual work that we do so interesting that I've never been able to give it up completely. And lately, I've been very concerned about, you know, just the pace of change that's going on out there. There is hyper competition and organizations are really struggling and the people in them with how much change is going on so quickly. I heard a statistic a while ago that I just didn't believe it was, you know, within 10 years, 50% of the S&P 500 is going to be gone. And I thought that's ridiculous. And now I believe it absolutely will happen because there's so many new products, new ways of doing things coming online and it's unlikely competitors. So what I've seen go on is a tremendous amount of interconnected work is happening in organizations, not like it was a few years ago, many years ago, let's say, when most of our talent systems were developed, you had stovepiped organizations, highly hierarchical, the management models were command and control, and you'd produce 300 widgets a day, and if you could produce 350, that was doing a great job. Now, you know, so much work is interconnected, it's delivered as part of team, and I think our talent systems are lagging behind. If you think about it, we select individuals who have certain competencies, and we look at, let's get all the competencies that you could possibly need for a given role, and we try to find those in one individual, and then we set individual goals, and we reward people individually. So we have all these systems that don't acknowledge the interconnected work that people actually have to perform. Um, when it comes to performance management, we assume that managers actually can observe what people are doing at work. And you know what? They're so busy and so distracted, and there's so much change, and organizations have flattened out, and they can't. So our talent systems, I think, to, to an extreme, have just stayed put way back when, when we had different types of organizations, different types of work, and I think we need to really think through the implications of all this change, interconnected work, flatter organizations, more demands on people, more competitive pressures with things moving so quickly. I think they have huge implications for our talent systems that we just, we haven't figured out yet because there's lots of gaps out there. I just gave you a few examples as a taster, but, you know, individual goals and individual rewards undermine team performance in many situations. So there's real disconnects out there that I think we need to think through and address better than we are. So Elaine, when you think about this shift that you just described, I mean, are you describing a shift that is kind of blowing up the entire mindset, the way you know we think and do performance management today, or do you see a path where organizations can shift over time from where they are today to where most are today to where they would need to be in order to make this happen? I think that, you know, in, there's still a component of performance that's individual performance, and that's never going to go away. So I think what needs to happen, and at least what we're working on and what I've been doing in my own work is, you need to understand individual performance and be able to manage it. 
you need to also understand team and interconnected performance and be able to manage it. And you need to know the difference and you need to know what's appropriate when. So I think there's a it's it's an added it's an additive thing. Sorry about that, Kelly. My phone just rang, but I'm gonna get rid of this for it. Um I think there's an additive component where we just need to say, look, we're dealing with a team situation here. What let's not just assume that um, something goes wrong and it's a competency gap because that would be the old assumption in our feedback models we run immediately to individual competency feedback but when you're working with the team the complexity of the work the interconnectedness of it means that there may be other reasons why there's a performance problem occurring there could be a team process issue there could be an environmental issue so I'm, I'm getting really concrete with you in terms of one example. We'd say, don't just jump to there's a competency gap. We need to for, we need to more comprehensively diagnose what's going on in this situation to figure out, is it a team issue? Is it an environmental issue? Is it a competency gap? We may end up giving some individual feedback or we may end up putting some new team processes in place. But we've really got to start thinking about how performance is occurring on the job so that we can put in place new processes and procedures for how to actually manage it to deliver results. Does that make sense? I mean, was that helpful in terms of describing at least one shift, but there's lots of those kinds of shifts out there that I think we need to make. Yeah, that is that is helpful. Thank you. And I'm, I'm curious, and I don't know, I'm putting a little bit on the, on the spot here so I understand the answer is I, I don't know or I can't say given the nature of your role in consulting, but are there organizations out there that you would say, hey, these are some of the ones to watch because they're doing some of this pioneering work, and even if it's early stage, these would be the ones that will give us some leading indicators about, hey, is this is this shift working, or are these shifts? You know, working, it's, I say. it's really it's really interesting because I don't think I think that I just gave a talk um, up at New York in New York at a conference board event. And I laid out where I think we're missing the boat on some of our performance management practices. But it's not just performance management. I think it's, you know, you could say the same thing is true about there's some implications for selection and development, and et cetera, et cetera. But I dealt with, look, here's where I think we're missing the boat. There's this new way or there's a new world of work out there or a work environment today I don't think our performance management practices are keeping up. I think we're missing the boat in our feedback model, in our goal setting models, et cetera, et cetera. Here's what I think needs to shift. And people in the audience who were all heads of performance management, you know, for most of them, they hadn't thought about this, Kelly, yet. So I think I'm a little bit ahead on getting these ideas out there, but they seem to be resonating pretty well. Um, I've been writing about them, blogging about them a bit, um, and the response has been really good. So I think it's hit a chord with people, and I'm excited about that because I think there are some things we can do very practically to help people with these disconnects. Our talent systems disconnect. It actually doesn't help people get anything done, you know? I mean, that's that's too harsh. 
But when you have a talent system that's focused on individuals, like around performance management, but really performance is delivered by a team, there are disconnects there. And by simply acknowledging that this is team performance and here are some strategies for managing it effectively, like without too much of a lift, we can actually help people um, get through their day and figure things out more easily. Does does that make sense to you? It's not hard. Mm -hmm. It's just we're not thinking about it. And I don't see a lot of people um, really getting down into the weeds for what exactly do we need to change? You know, what's different? What really needs to change um, in ways that I think will make life easier for those in organizations, especially managers? Um, I think we put a lot on managers. And I think this idea that managers can be there, observe everyone's performance, develop people, I mean, I just don't see that as practical. So we need other tools and strategies to help that along. So that's what I'm focused on is really taking the implications of the work environment today. And so, yeah, go ahead. No, please go ahead. No, 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 that was it. That's fine. I was just going to say taking these <laughs> situations and trying to translate it into, now what do we need to do differently? Because there are things we need mm -hmm. to do differently. So speaking of do differently, how can the field of I.O. best contribute to creating high-performance workplaces? Um, I think, you know, it's, I spoke earlier about this adaptability research that I did a few years ago, and I've been engaged in research more recently with Ben Schneider and Tracy Cantorwitz, where we actually have a model of, it's called our ARA model. It's adaptability, resilience, and agility, because we think those things are slightly different, but it's a model of how we can help organizations understand all the different things that are involved in them being successful. Now, performance management is one of the things that plays a big role, but it's about helping people to actually know how to manage performance within a team as individuals as a manager, like what circumstances exist today and how to manage performance in those circumstances so that they can be high performing and deliver results. But it's not just having the right performance management practices. And I'm not talking about the formal system. I'm talking here about behaviors that matter most in a fast paced, changing, highly competitive environment. Like, what does that look like? What do you need to do differently? It's not about what rating scale you use. It's not about how often you set formal goals. In fact, those things don't matter at all. It's about how you behave and how you set yourself up to succeed when you're managing performance. But there are other variables in the mix. It's not just having the right behaviors, thinking about performance management in the right way. You have to have a clear strategy. You know, the climate needs to be inclusive and it needs to be one where you can take risks and you need the workforce to be engaged and you need to understand work from end to end even if you're not doing the whole process you need to understand who you need to coordinate with how that's going to work what their part is what your part is so it's really very different it's very interconnected and the way we need to go about work today is so different so it's about enabling all of that. It's like enabling an ecosystem for high performance 
in a hyper-competitive, you know, unrelenting, unrelenting change type environment. Because that's what we're faced with today. And it's more than just agile teams from IT development. And so that's what we're working on is what's the ecosystem we need to create to enable high performance. That for me is super interesting because that's what's really going to make a difference to organizations and employees. Are there any um, early findings or early publishings of that model, of the ARA model, that our listeners might be able to access, or is that something forthcoming that they should just continue to watch for? Actually, you know, on LinkedIn, I have posted a lot of things on LinkedIn, several articles about both performance management and our ARA model, and we're collecting data now, very promising. So far, we've collected data from about 300 or organizations, so it's really good. We have a very robust sample. And yes, we will be publishing, uh, publishing more about this shortly. But, you know, I didn't want to wait till we had all of the research because the model came from the literature. So it was, this is the put things out there early, get people's um, reactions to your idea. Is it resonating? Is it hitting a chord with people? And I think that's helping to guide my research and where we push. Because if we're working on a problem, if we think a problem is interesting, who cares? But if it's a problem that's resonating with people and some of our ideas are ahas for them or new insights, then we get excited about that's an area we really do want to pursue. So, yeah, I've been doing a lot of posting. I didn't even hardly know what social media was couple of years ago, but I found it to be a fantastic outlet for getting feedback on ideas. So there are, the ideas are out there. We're following the, with the research, but you can't wait two years till you have all the research data to start putting out your ideas. That to me doesn't make sense anymore, not with how quickly the field is moving. Hmm. Well, that's great. Well, that's something uh, I know all of us will be looking forward to learning more about and hearing more about as that unfolds. Um, so, Elaine, have you have you worked with organizations that push back against performance management? And if so, how do you typically handle that? Yeah, I actually like, well, it, you know, if, if an organization is actually interested in performance management, it's probably not the, the best organization for me to be working in. I'm not a fan of traditional performance management, and I've been writing about how it needs to change for years. You know, we have a lot of research that clearly shows that formal performance management just doesn't move the needle. It has virtually no impact on performance or organizational outcomes. And in fact, performance management done in the traditional way can actually be disengaging. What we also know from our research is what matters most are certain key behaviors. You know, people have really clear expectations so they know exactly what they need to do. And it becomes really important to have that sorted out when you're when you're doing a bunch of interconnected work with teams because it's not only like what goal do we need to achieve, but what am I going to do versus you versus somebody else. It's amazing how easily performance derails just because of the lack of clear expectations. But that's something you need to kind of get squared away from the start and make sure you stay clear on every single day. And the fact that you're working with a lot of people to get stuff done you have to have wait, you know, you have to be intentional about doing that. But those are the kinds of behaviors. That one's important. Are people getting real time feedback embedded in work 
that nudges them to adjust their performance. It can come from team members, it can come from metrics, but we gotta set all this up to actually enable people to perform. And are people helping each other solve problems? Because we run into a lot of blockers and problems today just because the fast pace of change, you know, priorities change, et cetera, et cetera. So we need mechanisms and people need to be behaving together to solve, solve problems. These are the things that actually lead to high performance. And these things are also what help organizations adapt, be resilient, and be agile. So for me, this is what I'm interested in doing um, and the work that we're pursuing now that kind of I would put under the rubric of performance management. But what I'm interested in is how do you actually manage performance to have an impact as opposed to formal performance management, which, which doesn't. So I'm really good if people don't want to do traditional performance management. I think that's right. And then if they're willing to explore how do we really impact performance, that gets me really excited. But implementing, you know, a conversation about what rating scale are we going to use or, you know, should we set goals annually or biannually? I mean, honestly, those things don't make a difference. So it's hard for me to get excited about doing work that focuses on that. Sounds a little bit like what the vision you're describing is one where there's a high performance world of work that is not tied to some burdensome, laborious performance management system or process, which I'm sure is one a lot of us find compelling. <laughs> a lot of folks would find compelling. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because. The one thing, I'm writing a book with Mary Angela Batista, and we've gotten 10 case studies from different organizations, like really high-profile organizations, so we're, we're really excited about these. Um, because when you look across all these case studies, and these are p people that have implemented PM transformations, and they're all different, and they all stem from the organization's strategy, personality, you know, their climate, culture, what they're trying to achieve. So one of our takeaways is there's no such thing as performance management best practices. You really need to, to understand your bespoke situation and design your process for your needs. Now, sometimes that's going to mean having ratings. One of our case studies from Medtronic was really interesting because they had ratings, they got rid of ratings, and then they re-implemented ratings. And they had a good rationale to do that. So you might say, well, that's going backwards because it's getting more burdensome. But they felt they needed them. They had a good rationale for them. And in the end, though, what they also said is, gosh, we've got to invest an awful lot more in enabling managers to manage performance. So they implemented a lot of training to do that. The latter part of that I was particularly interested in because I think managers aren't enabled enough. So... For them, this all worked well. Somebody else got rid of everything, and that worked well. So I, I don't have a, I don't think there's a one best way to think about performance management. I think that if you have a reason for some process and some burden, you know, if it's giving you something that you need, it's okay. But I think where we're missing the boat, and the research shows this, is that we still don't have effective feedback figured out. And so that's something that I'm particularly interested because I see organizations where that's done well. We're starting to do research to understand what creates a good feedback culture. Um, 
and I I think that's where we need more work and where we can really make some some impact. So for me personally, the system, how burdensome it is, et cetera. I mean, as long as it fits the circumstance, that's fine. But where my passion lies is in trying to get the right behaviors, the right climate going, because we know that those are critical in actually impacting performance outcomes. The um, the theme of what you're talking about resonates strongly with um, a theme from one of our earlier conversations this year with David Peterson, who talked um, similarly about his how his passion for developing leaders was not necessarily tied to coaching. In fact, he's um, kind of um, not really all that passionate about coaching itself, but passionate about the development of leaders. And so it's interesting that uh, you have a similar theme there with your your passion about building high performance organizations, but not necessarily mm. passionate about traditional performance management systems. That's amazing because that's pretty good company to be in. Then <laughs> I think the world is so good, so smart. So small. Well, Elaine, I, I know we're running out of time here, but maybe one final question for you today. Sure. Um, what are the topics that IOs should be thinking about now in order to be leaders of positive change in the world of work? You know, that's an interesting question, Kelly, because I think the topics that I've been talking about in this conversation are ones that are really important. However, I think when people say to me, what does IO psychology have to do? I think we have plenty of interesting research findings. I think we have plenty of interesting topics, you know. I do think that where we could develop more and maybe do better is around how we're getting a brand for IO psychology out into the market. I just, you look at people who have a big impact broadly, like to the average person out there, and they're taking their ideas and they're packaging them and they're marketing them and they're making them plain language, accessible, and interesting for people. And there's an aha in there and people go, wow, that's really interesting. And you create a platform for getting, you know, translating your research into something that's broadly consumable so that you can develop a brand for whatever it is you're doing. I think that's really, really important for having an impact. And I think we're underachieving there as IO psychologists because we don't have a brand out there that's broadly known. Are there IO brand builders that you see out there? Anyone that you see that seems Not to be people. particularly good at distilling the concepts into the brand and the marketing that you, that makes it consumable? Exactly. I mean, I think we need to develop there. It's not so much, I mean, there's tons of areas we work in and we have interesting things to contribute from lots of those areas. I mean, I have my own personal interests. I do think the world of work and getting everything aligned for that is a fruitful area for, for research in the future. There's all kinds of AI stuff going on. That's fruitful. But more than any area, what I just talked about, the marketing and branding of what we do and getting it out there consumably, because if we can't do that, then none of these other things actually matter because nobody will be listening. They won't know all these cool things that we're finding out about and that we can that we can help them with our insights. So yeah, that's where I think we need to focus first and, and foremost 
is on our brand, our marketing, how we communicate, how we translate what we're doing. So it's straight Avoiding the pitfall. Yeah, sounds like yep. avoiding the pitfall of becoming the world's coolest echo chamber. <laughs> I <laughs> so. <did> <laughs> Well, great. Well, Elaine, thank you so much. Unfortunately, that's all of our, our time for today, but this has been a fascinating conversation, and I could have um, talked with you about these topics for hours. On behalf of PSYOP, the Visibility Committee, and all of our listeners, thank you for an interesting and enlightening conversation and for taking the time to speak with us today. Ellie, thank you for having me. It was great. You're a great host, and um, these conversation series, I think, are really super idea. So thanks again. I appreciated the opportunity to talk with you. Well, thank you, Elaine. And listeners, thank you for joining today's discussion. We hope you'll join us for our next conversation series live broadcast on January 30th in the new year at 11.30 a.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Central, where we will be talking with Dr. Talia Bauer, SIOP president. Later in 2019, we'll be chatting with more IO thought leaders, including Drs. John Boudreau, Anne-Marie Ryan, Paul Sackett, and Nancy Tippins. We look forward to speaking with you again in January. Until then, take care.